I take from my text this morning the 37th verse of the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. Please pray with me. Lord of mercy, parent of Jesus the anointed, open our hearts to this difficult text this morning. Show us your path, your truth, who you are. This we pray with our whole being. Amen. This is always a fun day, don't you think? Palm Sunday, yes. We get the fun, chaotic procession of the kids and adults with great shouts of joy, waving palms, energy, enthusiasm. You smile at the person next to you in the pews as you shuffle forward to pick up your palm frond. It sets such a nice tone for the service for the week. You look forward to leaving church uplifted and happy. If you're a kid, you get to make those little palm frond crosses. Remember those? Then, then some preacher, some fellow in the billowing black robe, someone who spent too much time reading Jonathan Edwards and Sinners in the Hands and Angry God, that guy decides that we need a sermon about the crucifixion. Really? It's a nasty story, vivid and unpleasant. And this particular translation is not as gruesome as some. This past week, Elizabeth mentioned to me how uncomfortable it was for children to have to listen to that passage. Do you really need to do that, John? Is it necessary? I know the feeling. It's Palm Sunday. We're having a nice church meal after the service that the youth have lovingly prepared. By the way, you all should come. You're all welcome. But for now, we're confronted with something else. Crucifixion. And that disturbing torture scene leading up to Jesus' death. You can see why so many mainline churches like to save it for Good Friday. Those who want to listen to the crucifixion and get all queasy can show up on Friday. The rest of us can get Palm Sunday, then fast forward right to Easter. Well, if you're unhappy with the story, you can talk to me afterwards. I take full responsibility. Minister literally means servant. You can tell me, hey John, you're supposed to be serving our interests and I want to see just palms, no cross. I don't want to be made to feel unhappy on a day like today. But truth be told, I know there are other reasons why some of you feel uncomfortable with the crucifixion. It's not just because the passage is a Debbie Downer, which it most definitely is. No, there's something else, something theological, a personal reason, why some of you would rather not hear about the cross. The cross is not a symbol that is void of meaning. For many of you, it has a long history because you grew up in churches where the cross and what happened on the cross was omnipresent. You heard about it every week. There were crosses in the sanctuary and around people's necks and plastered all over the kitchen that sits on, some, on those small shelves in people's homes. Yes, you are familiar with the cross. You had to hear about it all the time. The cross was the penalty paid for your sins. Is that phrase of a deep resonance for you? Did you ever hear that growing up? 
It may, not have, it may not have been mentioned every week, but it was always there, lurking in the background. When those strains of Just As I Am began playing on that piano or that organ, or even with some contemporary band, you knew what the message was. You thought about all of your backsliding, all those little sins. Every cuss word you said, every magazine image you looked at when you knew it was bad, That memory of you parked in the car with the music playing low and hands traveling where they weren't supposed to. Then you heard that music on Sunday morning and it all came back, the waves of guilt. Part of you wanted to get up from your pew, you knew you should. You knew God wanted you to walk down that aisle, but you were ashamed of it. Then all the people would know. They would know the real you, the sinner. So you just sat and looked around and wondered who it would be that day, who would later be a subject of gossip. The cross was inexplicably, inextricably linked up with the thought of sin and how Jesus took the penalty for your sins. You should feel grateful for Jesus, you were told, but somehow you weren't. You just felt guilty that you were such a person that made Jesus go through that. Oh, the cross. You fled that. You ran away from that. You wanted to find a church that didn't keep mentioning it. You knew God was love. And you wanted to experience love on Sundays, not some heavy-laden cross. That's why you're here. It's the reason why you're at FCC. You don't see many crosses here. You don't have to sing those songs about Jesus' blood here. So why on earth is the minister talking about this? It's a fair question. As you all know, I didn't grow up in one of those churches. I never had that association with the cross. I was spared those feelings of guilt. And I can appreciate that some of you come from a different place than I do. But I am a Christian, one in the liberal mold. Not politically, but theologically. Well, I mean, I I am liberal politically, but... (laughs) But that's something different than what I'm talking about. I like to celebrate progressive Christianity, liberal Christianity, and I like to talk about it from this pulpit. Part of my calling as a liberal Christian minister, I've always thought was to think and consider the ancient symbols and language of the faith and make them relevant to today. More often than not, these are not new meanings. In many cases, the views of liberal Christians are very old indeed, but they are different views from what most Christians believe, at least in this area. I don't want to shy away from the language of the faith. I want to engage it from a progressive theological perspective, and that's true for the cross as well. I might not have grown up in a conservative Christian tradition, But I did read my Bible. I like the Gospels in particular, those great stories of Jesus that I've always found so compelling. That includes this story, the story of the crucifixion. And when I read it through, or when I read it through, read it through in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I didn't find anything about the cross taking away my sins. Theology just simply isn't there. It's not. Read through this passage. Nowhere in this story... Is there even a hint that Jesus is suffering on the cross as, as, a, propiti- as a propitiation I'll get that right, propitiation for my sins? Jesus doesn't look out from the cross and say, this is for all y'all sinners out there, now you're all good, provided you don't backslide. I don't see that in the text. Nothing of the sort. Later, when I, later on, when I was in divinity school, I learned about this, about this particular theology of the cross. Do you know where it comes from? Do you, know where, do you know when it originated? It comes to us from a theologian in England, known to us as Anselm of Canterbury. 
he wrote his great work, Cur Deus Homo, in, in the years 1094 to 1098. That's right. The theory of the cross, of the atonement, that so dominates Western Christian thinking, came into being a thousand years after Jesus' death. It was not the view held by early Christians. Not at all. Now, yes, you can look through Paul's letters, especially the letter to the Romans, and see language that justifies substitutionary atonement. But there are also other ways to read that same language of Paul. The liberal view of the cross goes back, far before the views that you find in many other churches, here in Houston and elsewhere. So when I reject that view of the cross, that Jesus' suffering takes away our sins, I'm in good company. I'm not some snowflake trying to distort history. I'm standing fully within the tradition. I am there with the earliest apostles. I'm, I'm saying that view of the crucifixion doesn't make sense on a whole host of levels, not the least of which being that the cross is not meant to be about guilt. We don't need to hand over that symbol, the cross, and forget about it. We can claim it, and claim it boldly as our own as liberal Christians. You up for that? Are you up for looking at the cross and seeing something else? All right, let's do it. It's common in certain circles to say that all the major religious traditions are basically the same. I'm sure you've heard people talk about that before. All religions are about compassion and love. The details just, uh, the, the specifics just get, bogged, get us bogged down in the details. Don't worry about those details of doctrine or the stories. Just love. But this type of attitude glosses over details that matter, that matter a lot in our faith lives. The Buddha was someone who spent his whole life trying to sort out the nature of truth. Like so many compassionate people, the Buddha was deeply disturbed by suffering. As he wandered through the Indian countryside, he saw suffering all around him. He meditated on this problem day after day. The Buddha came up with what he called the Four Noble Truths. The first of those noble truths is that life is dukkha, it's impermanence, it's suffering. The problem of suffering of pain is something that each major religious tradition takes seriously. The second noble truth of Buddhism is that the source of suffering is desire. Because we have desire, because we have attachments, we suffer when something happens. The solution for the Buddha was the third noble truth, the elimination of desire. If we want to be happy, if we want to be at peace, we must eliminate everything that stems from desire. The goal is detachment. Someone must work his or her whole life to eliminate those attachments. And the fourth noble truth was the guideline to eliminate attachment, what the Buddha called the Eightfold Path. You must be mindful of every situation, of every emotion within you to eliminate desire, to not be moved by things. Only by following the Eightfold Path can we reach nirvana, the complete extinguishing of the self. One major branch of Buddhism even teaches that the self in all of its manifestations is an illusion. There is no essence that is you. There's certainly a lot of wisdom in Buddhism. Given its emphasis and its outlook, it is no surprise that Buddhism is the most peace-loving of all the world's great religions. It also makes sense that the highest calling for a Buddhist is to become a monk, separated from the world, without possessions, focused on meditation and self-control. See why it's, so, it's been so compelling throughout history. Christianity, however, at its core, is nothing like Buddhism. Christianity believes very firmly that we do have souls, that we do have something that is our essence and which survives after death. 
Jesus very much did have attachments. He acted in the world, not out of instinct as a Buddhist might, but out of being deeply moved by those around him. He saw the sick, the outcast, the poor, those in prison, and he felt for them in his innermost being. In John chapter 11, Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. Moreover, Jesus actively confronted those in power. He challenged them, not just in the relatively safe confines of Galilee, but also in the center of of Jewish power in Jerusalem. He sought out and preached about the kingdom of God, but that kingdom of God is not an individual vision like the Buddha's. It was a collective vision. The goal was communal goodness, peace, justice. The crucifixion is the ultimate extension of Jesus' life. It's the strong statement that not only is suffering a part of life, it is a necessary part of life. For Christians, attachments are good, not bad. We are called on to live deeply attached lives. Desire is celebrated. We should desire justice in this world. We should love deeply those around us. We should weep often from sadness and joy. There's so many in the world right now who do their level best to avoid suffering, to try and insulate themselves, not in some systematic way and realistic way like Buddhists, but in a way that is instinctual. These people seek out maximum comforts materially, the softest couch, the most comfortable car, vacations where nothing happens, not spiritual growth, nor exploration or new experiences, but insulation from the world with five-star service. These people avoid talking about politics and voting because it's disturbing. But that is not the Christian way. Christians know, like Jesus, that attachments, real deep attachments, make life worth living. They give true joy and meaning. Christians know that we can never fully insulate ourselves from suffering. Loss, grief, absence, pain, emotion, ecstasy, these things are all a part of life. Christians confront them. They live deep, committed lives. All of which brings us to the cross. When we live Christian lives, lives that are full of meaningful attachments to family and friends, lives that are driven by compassion and love for others, lives that strive for justice in society, lives that wrestle honestly with our own mistakes and failings, we find ourselves at one time or another facing the cross. The cross is not something to skip over in our eagerness to go from the excitement of Palm Sunday to the joy of Easter morning. When we look at the cross, we are reminded of that deep truth of our faith. Suffering is there. It is real and unavoidable. It is painful and torturous. And it's something that Jesus endured, something Jesus endured just like you. Life is cruel. We do not get what we deserve. At work, our efforts are not always appreciated. People get promoted over us who don't deserve it, or we lose our jobs in some corporate reshuffling that makes no sense. We invest time in our relationships. We express love and interest in others in ways that are ignored and rebuffed. Sometimes those rejections hit us to our core and send us into depression and self-doubt. It's then when we look up to the cross. We have pain in our bodies, shooting pain that radiates from our lower back down through our legs. We have hips and joints that throb from inflammation, inflammation that is only partially removed by by the rounds of Advil we take. And we wince and question how much longer we can endure it. And as we wince and question how long we can endure it, 
we look up at the cross. We see those nails. We notice the blood dripping down from them. We are reminded of Jesus' pain. We watch our loved ones suffer. We sit beside bedsides with with the beeping of hospital machines and we press the button to call the nurse once again and get frustrated that it's taking so long. Where is everyone? As we glance around that room from the face of our loved one to the bed and the window, we notice the cross. It's there. We are worn out and drained and hear the alarm go off all too early in the morning and drag ourselves out of bed to face another day where we seemingly live from one cup of coffee to the next we look at the cross. We come home to an empty apartment or house yet again. And for some reason, that day, that evening, we are struck by the emptiness of it, the silence of it. The framed photo of a loved one who is no longer there catches our eye. We've asked why too many times and are done with the questioning. That ache, that hole in our hearts lingers. We turn on the television to distract us, scrolling through one Netflix show after another. Nothing excites us, so we turn it off and sit. The comfort of the chair does nothing to comfort us. Minutes go by and we lose the energy to even get up or want to move. Or maybe you've never had that experience of love. Maybe you've long since decided to give up on dates and the scrolling through one dating profile after another. The aloneness doesn't go away. You look up at your shelf and you see the binding of a book with the words Holy Bible written in gold lettering and you remember this scene. Remember the cross. Sit down at your computer and bring up Facebook. Amidst the pictures of friends and memes you see yet one more article of a young unarmed black man killed by the police. The names are so many that that they just seem to blend together into numbness. You worry about our country sliding one step closer to war with the appointment of a man as national security advisor whose greatest accomplishment was leading us headlong into the Iraq war. You think of the young men and women who will have to pay the ultimate price for the hubris of those who never fought, who never knew what it was like, who did all they could to avoid that jungle, that desert. All this just seems like too much to bear. Or maybe you're someone who's had to walk walk that darkest valley of all. Had to stand by the graveside as they put the last shovel of dirt over the body of your child. No amount of tears, no amount of drink, no hand on the shoulder can ever rid your mind of what was lost. And sometimes the darkness is so overwhelming that you want to curl up in a ball with your knees drawn close to your chest as you taste the salt in your tears touching your lips once again. Perhaps sitting there you think of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who had to stand at the foot of that horrible cross. You think of the regret that she must have gone through in her mind. What if she had not let Jesus go? What if she had implored him a little more forcefully not to go see John the Baptist? What if she had convinced him to stay home and be safe? But Mary knows as she stands there and watches Jesus struggle to take his last breath that her son was her son. He could have been no other. That was the path that he had to walk. Could you ever say to her that that attachment, that desire, that love was wrong, even though the pain is unbearable? As these thoughts go through your head, curled up on that hard floor, you can feel the arms of God wrap around you. 
You can hear God, God herself, whisper in your ear, I know, I know. Happened to me too. God in heaven, I wish there was no such thing as that cross. I wish more than anything else that those pains could be avoided. I wish that suffering, that that suffering that tears out our very being into pieces was not the way things are. I wish that the pain was not so real. But then I remember that that would require no attachment, no deep love, no deep desire. You could have that life. It wouldn't be life. This story, the story of the crucifixion, horrible as it is, is the most profound statement on life that our faith has. Life is not the prosperity gospel. It's the gospel of the cross. Love and attachment, its joys, its losses. When I read this passage, I am always struck by that centurion who stood at the foot of the cross alongside Mary. He was there as the official representative of of a repressive regime. His job was to make sure the executions went off. But there was something about that centurion's life. What was it? What had he gone through that led him to look up at the lifeless body of Jesus, that pathetic scene of pain, and be transformed? He too must have known suffering. Centurion had seen it and lived it. Had he lost his best friend and yet one more imperial war of conquest that led to nothing? Had he seen too many innocent people killed to justify the Pax Romana? Or was it something more personal, something he had, to, he had to face every day? But when he saw that body, something came over him and he muttered as though to himself, Truly this man was God's son. The centurion left that day thinking that that was all there was. The cross, with all of its suffering, was God's final word. He knew the truth of it, the truth of the pain. I always wonder if he had heard what happened three days later. A story we will tell next Sunday. Next Sunday is a glorious day. The day of days for Christians. But it doesn't make sense. It doesn't speak to the depth of life and human experience without this moment on the cross. Centurion might not have known about Easter, but maybe he could hear the word of God on Good Friday, the message of the crucifixion. Maybe he did catch it floating in the hot, humid hair, those words that emanate from the cross to each of us in our moments of suffering, those words of God, I know the pain, I too loved deeply, I was there. I'll be there again each time with you.